Welcome to episode five of the Media Sport podcast series. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins, from the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Today we speak via Skype with Holly Thorpe, a senior lecturer and researcher at the University of Waikato in Hamilton on the North Island of New Zealand. The focus of this episode is action sports in an age of mobilities and transnational media and population flows. And when I talk about action sports, well, I'm making reference to surfing, windsurfing, skateboarding, parkour, kite surfing and snowboarding and so on. Once considered marginal subcultural pursuits, these activities have become increasingly big business in recent years, as shown by major events such as the X Games, the growth of action sports throughout Asia, and the rise of multinational sponsors and media houses such as Red Bull. Holly has been conducting research on action sports for over a decade, having published in major journals including Mobilities, Leisure Studies, the International Review for the Sociology of Sport and Sociology. She's the author of the book Snowboarding Bodies in Theory and Practice, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2011, and the co-editor of the Berkshire Encyclopedia of Extreme Sports alongside Douglas Booth, who in his own right is a distinguished figure in sports studies and sports history. Holly's kindly agreed to speak to me about her latest book, Transnational Mobilities and Action Sport Cultures, which was published earlier this year. Given its theoretical sophistication and impressive empirical breadth and depth, this monograph is deservedly endorsed by John Uri, the founder of the new mobilities paradigm in sociology. In bringing the term transnational to life, the evidence she presents is drawn from a number of countries, including Australia, Canada, France, Italy, Portugal, Puerto Rico, Spain, Switzerland, Tahiti and the United States. It also features chapters that deal with the arrhythmic experiences of action sports after the devastating earthquakes that hit Christchurch in New Zealand in 2011, as well as the uses of parkour by youth living on the Gaza Strip in the Middle East. I learned a great deal reading this book and I highly recommend it to listeners. Information about Holly's background, research, teaching and her publications can be found at the following URL, hollythorpe.com, H-O-L-L-Y, T-H-O-R-P-E. Holly, thanks for taking the time to speak to the Media Sport Podcast Series. Thank you so much, Brett, for such a, a generous introduction. I'd like to begin by asking about the defining features of action sports and connected to this, what you mean by the term action sport cultures. Yes, yeah, so you, you gave a nice little uh, definition at the beginning, actually, which fits quite nicely with uh, how I think about them. The term action sports um, it broadly refers to a wide range of mostly individualised activities. So, as you mentioned, surfing, skateboarding, kite surfing, BMX, snowboarding, parkour. And so, at least when in the early phases of development, these sports differed uh, from more traditional, rule-bound, competitive, uh, regulated Western sort of achievement sport cultures. They, and I'm using the term action sports um, but there are lots of other definitions that researchers have been using over, over the years. Uh, lifestyle sports is a term that Belinda Wheaton uses. Uh, extreme sports, um, emerging sports. These are some of the other terms. But I'm using action sports uh, mostly because the term that the industries are using themselves and the participants are using themselves today. Um, many of them are, are re rejecting the term extreme sports, which they feel, many of them feel, was imposed upon them by transnational corporations, so they are tending to embrace the term action sports, and that's why I'm using it. But action sports, 
they mostly developed in the 1960s and 1970s, um, mostly in North America and other parts of, around Europe. And they were mostly popular among alternative youth who were embracing these activities um, as something different to more rule-bound, competitive, traditional sports. And obviously each action sport has its own unique history and identity and development patterns. But those early participants, they, what's important is that they saw themselves as different to other sports. They were, in a way, rejecting more traditional sports, and they wanted to do something different in their sports. And so this history is actually quite important in what we're seeing today uh, in action sports, because although we've seen a huge amount of change in a very short amount of time, um, particularly in the 1990s, big corporations saw the potential in these, these alternative activities, these cool youth um, to, to sell products, basically, to that very hard-to-access um, demographic of, of youth consumers. Um, and so what happened in the, in the 90s was a, a rapid process of commercialization and institutionalization, um, and with that came a lot of debates and politics within action sports cultures themselves. But it, it happened regardless of those debates, um, and these sports became, you know, they became the X Games, they have been included in the Olympics, you know, we've got snowboarding, we've got BMX, um, we've got freestyle skiing in the Olympics, and so we've seen a lot of changes in these sports in quite a short amount of time, but with the, there's still a lot of um, participants in the industry, there's still this idea that they are different to um, more traditional, organised, rule-bound, competitive sports. But with all this growth and all these changes, um, we've seen a a lot of fragmentation within these sports. So you've got lots of different ways of participating, lots of different styles um, from the, the extreme athletes um, who tend to, the media sort of focuses on those, on their extreme pursuits, and this creates this image of these extreme um, activities as being daredevil, risky um, activities. But actually the majority of the participants are particip participating at not particularly risky level and they're... Um, you know, more everyday participants, and they range from five years old to 75 and older, actually, and and much more diversity in these sports. So it's no longer just those white young males who are often the, the early participants. It's much more diverse with women taking them up, young girls taking them up, fathers teaching their sons and daughters to, to participate in these sports. Older, they talk about the graying of these sports, so you've got older participants um, getting into them or even you know when the young guys who started in the 60s and 70s are still doing them. So we're talking about the graying of these sports. Hmm. It's Yeah, it's an interesting trajectory. But it's uh, reading the introduction to your book, you also sort of explain how that connects to your personal history, that you've actually, I suppose, literally watched all this happen both at first hand but at, and then as a scholar. Could you sort of explain this connection between your autobiography and, and your research for listeners? Yeah, sure. So I, I grew up in a small beach town on the east coast of New Zealand with uh, parents who were passionate windsurfers and surfers. And it's only now sort of looking back that I realised that this probably played a big part in my um, my research trajectory and topics that I focused on. But um, So I grew up surfing, skateboarding, wakeboarding, um, and surrounded by you know these cultures. And then when I went to university uh, in the South Island of New Zealand, I fell in love with the sport of snowboarding, which was sort of, um, this is in the, the late 90s at this point, so it was, it was a growing sport, but still a little bit marginal. 
and I absolutely fell in love with the sport and dedicated every spare dollar and minute I could to, to learning the sport and ended up doing eight back-to-back winters between the South Island of New Zealand and America where I became a snowboard instructor and competed um, in various snowboarding events, so big air, slope style, board across, half pipe, um, and was doing doing reasonably well for a while there. Um, and so it was my traveling experiences actually that led to this book, and actually it was a theme that ran through my PhD, but I, I parked for a little while there. Um, and it was this, when I was traveling back and forward during these winters, I was meeting a lot of young people who were doing the same sort of thing from all around the world, from South Africa, um, from Brazil, from Australia, from Canada, from America, from France. They weren't all snowboarders. Some of them were skiers. They were climbers. They were kayakers or rafters. Or, But what I really observed um, is, and, and heard in a lot of conversations was this idea that we belong to some sort of global culture that snowboarders in other countries, we can share something. We have the shared experience that crosses national borders. And I was interested in sort of overhearing these conversations and this sort of uh, global discourse that was coming through in terms of the way I was hearing these sports being discussed and experiences being shared. And this is something that I wanted to explore further and it became sort of the, um, the, the trigger for this book. And it's well, and it comes through really strongly, um, particularly the, the structure of the book. Mm. And sort of the some of the opening chapters deal with do-it-yourself media practices and participatory media cultures. You know, in this context, which they're terms that have relevance long before these terms became popular within mainstream communications and media studies or internet studies. Mm. What are some of the functions of mobile media technologies such as iPhones or smartphones, GoPro action cameras and, and sites such as YouTube in these sports? Oh, they're just absolutely integral. <laughs> and young people participating and actually you know, action sport participants are prolific users of digital and social media. Um, so Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, they're watching the live events via their smartphones. And in so doing, it's impacting, I think, upon the way contemporary, the, their cultural alliances and their identities in local and translocal contexts. So uh, I use the term uh, prosumer um, uh, because what we're seeing is it's no longer, you know, niche media has always been absolutely integral to these sports. And it was mostly videos and magazines, but then over the last last five to ten years, we've definitely seen a huge rise in the way participants are themselves using these new media, um, not to just consume the experiences of others, um, but to record their own experiences and share those locally, nationally, and globally with their who they see as their peers in these sports. And it's not so. It's no longer just the you know the elite athletes who are recording their experiences and making videos out of them. It's 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 almost part of the experience. And I start one uh, chapter two, actually chapter three, sorry, with a, a little narrative of it's actually two of my younger brothers and their buddy, and they're lot they're passionate longboarders, and so they're you know eleven to fourteen years old, and this little narrative, and they are. They are watching videos on YouTube and the, of longboarders in California, and then they are 
going to their room, getting their GoPro, putting it on their on their helmets, going up the hill, calling all their mates on their phone, and then they're you know spending three or four hours skateboarding together, recording each other. It's very much part of integral to the experience. And then after that, they go back to the computer and they're uploading these videos. They're editing them. They're putting music to them. They're sharing them on YouTube. And then they're you know sharing with their with their local, national, global global communities and getting feedback. And it's very much integral to the whole experience. So we've got the it's very much um, participatory media moment that's happening in these action sport cultures. Um, but then we've also got those elite athletes who are using GoPros in incredible ways. Um, in terms of the extreme athletes who are you know, with the GoPro, it's enabling us to have these those of us that can never actually experience these types of these moments or um, very affective experiences, whether it's deep in a barrel in Tahiti or riding along a, a mountain ridge in Alaska or jumping off an antenna in, antenna in Chile, they are, we can be in their bodies almost and have access to these experiences in deeply affective ways. So, yeah, these you know, relatively cheap mobile digital technologies are, are absolutely integral to these sporting cultures and it's, it's no longer just the, you know, the privileged youth who have access to these, um, these media opportunities and experiences. In one of the chapters, I talk about how young men in, park, in Gaza, parkour practitioners, are using very cheap digital mo- mobile phones um, and then you know, uploading them to the internet and sharing their videos with the transnational parkour community. So it's, it's no longer just... Um, the, the wealthy and privileged youth who have access to these technologies and we're seeing youth using them in very creative, innovative ways. Yeah, the, mat- the material on the, the Gaza Strip and the reappropriation of dangerous public spaces is um, you know, really original. How did you come to discover these activities and sort of you know, gain access to what was going on with the, 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 the young men doing parkour? Yeah, this actually all came about, I had a Fulbright fellowship at Georgetown University in 2012, and I had been talking to uh, someone in the um, you know, governmental level in the, in the US who um, the Sport for Development and Peace sort of movement, and she'd alerted, alerted me to some interesting developments in, in the Middle East. And then I stumbled upon a, a grad student who also had an interest in action sports, and she'd spent time living in the Middle East, and we started talking about it, and that all just sort of flowed from there. And once I realised that there were some really interesting things happening in terms of action sports being you know, um, developed and reappropriated in, in the Middle East, that was there was no stopping there. But it was very interesting how the... Um, how the the project in Gaza came about because obviously I, I didn't go to Gaza, but we, and we ended up using Facebook as a way to the private messaging in there for us to have um, to be able to communicate with the guys there, um, the parkour practitioners, and they they preferred that that space for us to have our dialogue that was there, there by their choosing. Um, so it was interesting how we were even using these new social media. Um, for my research methods as well. Mm. It offers a nice segue into my you know, question around the use of social networks. You, you sort of nominate Facebook and talk about a process you refer to as virtual memorialisation in the book. What are you describing with that term? The virtual memorialisation, yes. This, um, this 
this is a chapter, oh, this is part of, of a chapter that I really enjoyed writing actually because it got me thinking quite differently um, in terms of how we're using social media and what happens to our social media platforms and spaces when we pass away. Um, and I, I looked at two case studies here in terms of um, professional surfer Andy Irons and pro uh, freestyle skier Sarah Burke. So these are absolutely action sport celebrities. And uh, what I was interested in is when they when they passed away, um, at, you know, right at the peak of their careers, really, both of them absolute celebrities in these action sport cultures. I was interested in how the global action sport cultures mourned their deaths via using social media and, you know, how that happened on, on Facebook. There was this um, instant sort of... Um, traveling of news of their death then how people were using websites and they were uh, people were creating their own uh, videos on YouTube they were posting on their their Facebook pages um, and then how the the global action sport communities of, of surfing and freestyle skiing used these spaces to collectively grieve uh, and I thought this was a very interesting process that's that's quite quite new really what sort of, I mean, what sort of content or comments? I mean, what sort of materials appear in these dedications? What I saw in terms of Facebook, some quite interesting things happening there is that people are post. So, once someone dies, um, you have basically two options on Facebook. Your Facebook page, if you have a Facebook page, that is, assuming that that this person does. Um, well, Andy Irons and Sarah Burke certainly did. And their Facebook pages can either be um, converted into a memorial page or family members or agents or whoever it might be can create a memorial page. And so we saw both of these happening for both of these action sports celebrities. And on these pages, you obviously have family, family, friends, people who knew and you know, really knew these people. But then you also have fans around the world who are posting comments on Facebook, They're posting um and often speaking to them directly. So I miss you, Sarah Burke. You were an angel. You are an angel. Or, you know, they, they're as if they're speaking directly to that person, although that person's passed on, those digital spaces are almost where they live on, which is mm. quite an interesting um, phenomenon that's happening there. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, as we're speaking, the first test between Australia and India is going on in Adelaide, and, of course, you're seeing some uh, similar but in some ways different dedications going on towards um, Philip Hughes, who passed away mm -hmm. a week and a half ago. But it, it's interesting how social networking becomes a site where people, I suppose, express emotion but also share their feelings about these events. Yes, and in those sharing, they're saying something to the culture about themselves. It's not like they're just, you know, when you post on Facebook and on a page like that, you're not just sharing your own emotions, but you're actually making a cultural statement that I care about this person, therefore I'm a participant of this culture. So there's, there are also um, cult, spaces of cultural performance as well as, you know, affective spaces and affecting spaces. Look, it's something that may, you know, this question may be one about more of a personal reflection on your part, but mm. you spoke about this sort of notion of, uh, or su the sustaining of this notion of alternative identities that are associated in these sports in their different ways. But 
A lot of the technologies and sites we've been talking about are produced by some of the largest multinational tech companies on the planet, you know, everything from iPhones to YouTube to Facebook. Is there a sense of any tension there or a discussion or awareness of tension there? Hmm. Within the cultures themselves? Yeah, or even just a critique on your part. I mean... I actually, I actually think these, these action sports have, you know, they had this these origins of considering themselves as different, distinct from you know, traditional sports and organisations. But we've actually seen multiple generations come through these sports where participants today, the majority of those that I speak to, are very aware that action sports are, you know, the X Games and action sports just go together. They are part of the Olympics. They, there's less of that critique of the way they once were, um, this more idealistic sort of way, and it's just the way action sports are today. They are um, deeply connected with transnational corporations, media, um, mega events. They, I think there's almost, the, you know, there's some challenging happening from some some athletes. I'm thinking of Terje Harkinson, a snowboarder. Um, there are some uh, surfers who are critiquing, um, but I haven't seen a huge amount of critique in terms of um, how they're using these digital technologies from these mega, mega companies. Um, but I do, in terms of how I structured the book, because I originally, as I said, my own lived experience as a transnational action sport migrant, or you know, I, I was traveling back and forth, and I thought in this project originally stemmed from thinking about those experiences of action sport migrants or tourists or people who travel and those types of mobilities. And I very quickly realized that I could not understand those travel experiences without understanding the roles of those transnational corporations, those, you know, the, the media houses, um, the mega sporting spectacles that are having, a, they're playing a critical role in the production of this transnational imaginary. So that people, action sport participants, feel like to be a member of these cultures, travel is part of it. They should they have these bucket lists of you know where they're supposed to go, or they they are buying magazines from Trans World Surf or Trans World Snowboarding, um, which are promoting these transnational celebrities. So I had to locate the whole book really, and um, with these chapters first, because I don't think you can understand these that this idea among action sport participants that belong to a global culture without critically unpacking that and thinking about the roles of these transnational corporations, media and events in terms of producing this transnational imaginary because it has it has economic benefits. Mm. <laughs> it's a huge industry. It's uh, They're um, anticipating that the action sports industry by 2017 will be worth over 20 billion US um, per annum. So there are these romantic ideas of belonging to a global culture, but this is very much, um, you know, it's, it's highly problematic. And, and this book does try to unpack those power relations in the economic, social, political, cultural forces that produce that transnational imaginary and who's benefiting from it. And who are some of the major players that you're talking about? I mean, are they... The sort of name, I mean, you mentioned the X Games, which is obviously on ESPN, but, and you mentioned Transworld. I mean, who else is there? Yeah, so in, in Chapter 2 in the book, it's titled Producing Transnational Networks, Action Sport Companies, 
media and events. And so in this, in this chapter, I look at uh, an example of a transnational corporation being Burton Snowboards and how they've gone from a very backyard, sort of very do-it-yourself, sort of um, one-man company to being a transnational corporation that's much more beyond, you know, beyond snowboarding. It has uh, producing products and skateboarding and surfing um, and all around the world. And so I look at that company there just as an example. You know, others would be things like uh, companies like Quicksilver or Rip Curl or Billabong or or Vulcan, which are absolutely all transnational corporations. Uh, I look at the significance of the X Games and particularly the global ex expansion of the X Games in 2013. So obviously the start in America, it has expanded to, to France, and in 2013 it went into Brazil, Germany, and Spain. So I was looking at these processes um, that happen, these global, local, globalization processes when you try to organize an event um, in, these, in these local spaces. Uh, I also look at Red, the Red Bull Media House and sort of how, the, how new media is integral to the choreography of their sporting spectacles, such as uh, Felix Baumgardner's um, Space Dive, which was um, had a, a huge global live audience and I think signifies or identifies some very interesting trends in how sporting spectacles are being choreographed and the significance of transnational corporations over the nation um, and the role of social new medias in terms of how these events are being produced and consumed. Look, many of our listeners won't be familiar with that space, Doc. Could you describe to them what that involved? Okay, so... On October 14, 2012, the Austrian skydiver and base jumper Felix Baumgardner, he stepped out onto a platform that was more than 120,000 feet from the earth, and he jumped. So he did a he did the the, the longest highest uh, base jump and landed safely. And this was an event a spectacle that was produced by Red Bull, um, and it was actually seven years in the making of this event. And it ultimately cost Red Bull more than nine million pounds to create the event, but it uh, the event broke the record of the most watched live streaming event on YouTube, with more than eight million people watching it live on YouTube, and many more millions around the world on various other platforms. Um, so, what I found really interesting about this the space dive by Baumgartner is that. Now, in comparison to similar sort of feats with, say, Sir Edmund Hillary and um, climbing Mount Everest in 1951, or, say, Neil Armstrong's first steps on the moon in 1969, this event had very little, uh, no connections to the nation. It was all about a transnational corporation, Red Bull. So Felix Baumgartner's in up and out of space, uh, stepped out onto this platform, and he's just covered in Red Bull logos, as is the, um, the, the capsule that he's in. Uh, there's no mention of it being associated with his nation or uh, the event took place, the, the launch and the landing happened in America. There were no connections with the nation. Uh, it was all about this transnational corporation and this transnational celebrity. So I thought this was, these are quite interesting trends that we're seeing happening there. Something I really uh, like about the book is the way that you sort of um, parallel each, you know, 
events at the level of the transnational, but also pay attention to things like the Gaza Strip and, you know, the immediately local experience of action sports. He also spoke, talk about action sports after the earthquakes in Christchurch in 2011. And I suppose a couple of things I'm interested in there is, you know, what were the challenges involved, you know, what were you looking at, but what were the challenges involved as a researcher, given that you live in New Zealand and are a New Zealander there? You know, for the book, it was, you know, I like I was saying, I started with these, look at these transnational corporations and transnational media and um, and the role of social media and creating this transnational imaginary. But the book, I really wanted also to focus on the local, on these processes of globalization, what's happening in local contexts, and not just focusing on the privileged mobilities of, you know, of wealthy youth. I also want to see how these, processes are affecting youth and local spaces such you know as like you said Christchurch after the earthquakes or in Gaza during a very uh, difficult um, war or time of war so the the last part of the book part three is trying to make a contribution to the mobilities research in terms of looking at action sport immobilities and disrupted and conflicted spaces and the, the Christchurch chapter um, came about, I have family there, um, their house was, was destroyed by the earthquake um, and I saw a gap in the research basically and, and that, you know, once the earthquakes have happened and, you know, people are not thinking about sport in any sense after those, you know, the, the earthquake and the devastation and just they're basically trying to, to get life to a point where they're, they're functioning again. But after the, you know, it was a very, very long recovery for people in Christchurch, months and months and months, and you get to a point where you start craving those things that used to make your life meaningful and, you know, give you a sense of stability and, um, you know, rhythm to your life. And for a lot of people, um, that is that is sport and physical activity. And your gyms are destroyed, your, your you know, your sporting grounds are destroyed, for surfers, the beaches weren't—they weren't able to access those because of uh, the pollution that was being pumped into the ocean. So they'd get sick if they went surfing. Skateboarders, their skateboard parks are destroyed. The the, the routes where people would go mountain biking or climbing—they're all destroyed. So people who you know these lifestyle sport participants, where it's part of their everyday sort of um, of their lifestyle, they they really struggled. And so what I I went down to Christchurch. I did interviews with fourteen. Uh, action sport participants, so surfers, skateboarders, climbers, uh, mountain bikers, about the role of these activities in their lives after the earthquakes and sort of the significance of these activities for helping them sort of make meaning of a new a new Christchurch for them um, and sort of the new mobilities that they sought out. Um, with their with their peers, with their families, and how these activities help them create a new sense of of meaning of that place. Um, and I really enjoyed using Henry Leverve's work there in terms of rhythm analysis and arrhythmia to, to think about the earthquake as an arrhythmic experience and this action sport mobilities in this local context for helping make meaning of, of their lives post earthquakes. And then the so yeah, this was quite an emotional sort of uh, research project and when I was doing an interview there was a, an aftershock and I was staying in the house with my family that was you know, 
basically falling down around us. So mm. I had to really try to put myself in their shoes. And um, you know, I don't live in, in that in that city, but I had to to tr- you know really listen carefully and um, yeah, try to understand and empathise with their experiences um, to write that chapter. Yeah, so right now I'm co-editing a book with my colleague, uh, Rebecca Olive, and the book's titled Women in Action Sport Cultures, Politics, Identity, Experience and Pedagogies, and this should be published by Power of Greg Macmillan in 2015. Um, So this is a fun project that we're working with academics from all around the world who are doing lots of really interesting projects in relation to to women and, and gender, gendered experiences and action sport cultures. And one of the chapters that I'm working on at the moment um, is on Skaterstan in Afghanistan and, and girls, the girls' programs there and also the experiences of female volunteers and employees in that organisation. Mm. Look, that's, I just wanted to say thank you for chatting to the Media Sport Podcast series. I really hope you'll be willing to join us again sometime in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me along, Brett. I appreciate it.